Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. It's Light the Tower, your daily look around the world of sports with Hall of Fame broadcaster and voice of the Texas Longhorns, Craig Way. And Horns 24-7 insider, Jeff Howe. On your live, local, and independent home for sports talk in Austin, The Horn. Once again, light the tower, making a call to the bullpen. Got the righty Cameron Parker in and Ty Henderson, who I'm assuming also a righty. Yes, I'm a righty. I'm a a knuckleballer. Okay, knuckleballer. All right. Craig Way is in the air right now to Stillwater, Oklahoma for the weekend series, Texas baseball. Jeff Howe will be along shortly, just stuck in the wonderful traffic out on 360. So for now, it'll be myself and the producer of Beanie Tai. How are you this morning? Doing all right. Doing all right. How about yourself? Doing good. I uh, had a great Flex ATX show last night. Zach Lucero, myself, and Nolan Hogan. It's up on FlexATX.com as well as the Flex ATX podcast and the Horn FM podcast. I know you've been a big part of the Flex ATX network. We had Todd Patman the new head coach of Del Valley, he came on the show for a bit. Uh, Bobby Acosta, who was at IMG, then he came to Del Valley, was there two years, and now he's the new OC at the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff. So Coach Patman, who was the Bass Trap head coach for a few years, his first season at Del Valley, found out a few weeks ago about Acosta's possible move, and then seven days ago was announced as the brand-new head coach. So he joined the show last night. Had a great chat with him. Then also, Nico Hamilton, the Lake Travis running back. Uh, we had him live in studio. His dad, Todd, nice enough to come out as well. And also related to uh, our own Hardball Harge. Bluetooth Harge over here. Yeah, Harge knows everybody. Rod Babers says that on the show, but it's true. He knows everybody or he's related to everybody. One of the two. Yeah, Nico, he's going to be a problem next year. Definitely a, a kid to look out for when you know, we're coming up on that all-flex watch list time. Of the year, I'm excited to see with the names that will probably be a, that'll be on there for this upcoming season. Yeah, we talked about it earlier this week, getting ready for the All Flex watch list. Uh, second year since its uh, development, probably be out sometime in the summer. Um, I know Ty, me and you will be a big part of that going forward. But Nico is definitely someone who will, you know, probably be on that list. Uh, a really tough year for Lake Travis. I know you're a Westlake guy, Ty, but talking about the Cavs just a little bit, they had the year from hell. I mean, first game, even before the game, I believe Bo Edmondson had already suffered that injury. He missed pretty much the entire season. And then even then, Nico Hamilton, he was out for a few games. It just felt like Lake Travis just had that bad year. And then also, Dripping Springs comes in. And Drip had one of the greatest years in school history. I mean, 
Austin Novosad, one of the best quarterbacks in the Centex area, you know, taking their second place in the district, if I remember correctly. Yeah, second place. Do you expect them to build off of that this year? I mean, they lost so much. You would think so. Um, they have such a good program intact. In they still bring back a lot of guys. Losing Novosad hurts, but I mean, looking around that district, it, it feels like it's kind of wide open. I mean, we knew going into last year it was going to be probably Drip and Westlake and once all Lake Travis had the injuries, kind of knew that they were in a little bit of trouble, and they had their worst finish, I believe, in the Max Preps era. I couldn't find a worse well, they finish. They lost in the first round, didn't they? Third round. Third round? Yeah. So they actually okay. lost to Cibolo Steel, I believe, yeah. in the third round. Um, or, sorry, San Antonio Brennan, 34-17, beat Steel on the second round, the area round. And then they beat Ron Rock in the first round, which is a big win for them, 35-10, then, lost to, then beat Steel, then lost to San Antonio Brennan. But Caden Leone possible will be the starting quarterback next season but it, it was a really good show and i encourage everyone to uh check out check out the podcast on flexatx.com cody stover a text coming in will be will kill it next year go wimberley they had a great year last year as well nearly made it all the way to the state uh i believe they lost to cuero they were undefeated yeah up to that point were they not the texans god man what an incredible mascot and what, what a great football uniform oh yeah i mean I mean, they. I feel like they kind of slid under the radar all year. I mean, what they're four A, yeah, four A. So you know, not competing against some of the in Austin schools that we talk about a lot of the times, but definitely a a growing program out there in Wimberley. I mean, yes. that, that that area of of Texas is just one of my probably my favorite. The Hill Country, yeah, still a big part of the Flex ATX network. Even their soccer team, I believe their their girls soccer team, also advancing to the regional quarterfinals. And I think in our our Flex ATX update once Jeff Howe gets here. We'll, we'll go into a little bit of that. and I'll, Also, I'll try and play some sound from the Flex show last night, including Todd Patman and and Papa Hamilton on his son and the process that goes through in, in recruiting-wise. Now, one other nugget, because I know when Jeff Howe gets here, it'll be a lot of UT talk. Ty, are you following the NBA at all as we get about five, six games away from the playoffs starting? Oh, yeah. My Mavs. Not as locked in mm. as I am right now to the NBA, but it's it's shaping up to be a, a good good postseason for sure. So after the Thunder's win last night on a, on a tipping at the buzzer by uh, Jalen Williams, now OKC is one game up over Dallas. For that 10 seed? For the 10 seed. Dallas Mavericks, who went to the Western Conference Finals last year, Ty, are in danger not only missing the playoffs, but also the play-in game. With Luca and Kyrie Irving, I mean, what's, what's been going on up in, uh, in the Metroplex? Well, you have a coach who is a defensive coach, um, likes to kind of play the game, slow down the game on offense, and and rely on your defense. And as personnel wise, this team doesn't have a defender after they traded away uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, who was their stopper, and uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, who was probably one of their mm-hmm. best defending guards for a Kyrie Irving. Who has put up great stats, but it just it's just not meshing well together. And I think it's not as much as it is on Kyrie as it is just missing those other yeah. guys. And it's still having Dwight Powell as your starting center. I mean, as Mav fans have been, I mean, we love the guy. He works hard. I, he's a great backup center, I think. But just he can't he can't compete with the Anthony Davises of the world, the Carl Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert. You know, when you put a a really skilled big man or someone that can overpower him out there, you really see, you, I mean, the the the, end, the result always shows. And it's usually uh, Mavs, Lucas scores 40, close game up until the last five minutes, and then, you know, they either they, they either blow it on the last possession or they end up just the other team pulls away because of their lack of defensive intensity. 
I believe with both Kyrie and Luka playing together, the Mavs are three and eight. And it's tough when you make a move like that for for two guys who are such ball dominant players to make a move at the trade deadline, but also to not be able to play together. I think that's also hurt the team. One game back from OKC for that that ten spot. Um, have Miami and Atlanta on the road their next two games back to back. Then Sacramento, Chicago, San Antonio. So you should be able to win. You're going to be favored in all those games besides the Sacramento game. Yeah, Chicago's kind of turned it on a little bit as of late. Um, Sacramento's tough. A- Atlanta is just a... How about Sacramento, though? White the beam. Clinching, ending the longest drought in sports, in current sports history for the playoffs. Ended it last night. Now that belongs to uh, my Charlotte Hornets. Uh, but, yeah, the Kings, turn it on. Oh, the Jets, and, right? Well, in the NBA, the Hornets. NBA, it's the Hornets in... All of sports, probably, Jets is probably it's up the Jets there. and the Buffalo Sabres in the NHL is the next the next team. So coming up after this break, real quick, we're going to welcome in uh, Jeff Howe as Light the Tower here on this Thursday. This gloomy Thursday continues in just a moment. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Rolling along, hour number one of Light the Tower on the Horn. Jeff Howe, Cameron Parker. Cameron, what year were you born again? 97. So you were you were five years old when this song came out, thereabouts. But I've definitely enjoyed it since, so okay. don't worry, Jeff. I just, I worry, I worry about uh, stating, you know, my musical tastes and influences because I worried 95% of it's going to go over your head and you're just not going to know what I'm talking about. No, fortunately, so I was raised with my dad's taste of music, which is like 70s, 80s, classic rock type stuff, and then uh, it was the delve into hip-hop in middle school. I, I, I'm for like teaching like classes in high school for music, so these kids grew up listening to real music and not like Olivia Rodrigo or uh, Maroon 5. Dude, you know one of the best classes I took in college? No joke. At uh, Texas State, this is one of the reasons why I ended up being a sociology minor. I don't know what you do with a sociology minor, Cam, but I have one. Uh, I took a class. Actually, it was two classes. Uh, One was sociology of pop culture, Mm. and one was sociology of pop music. Both really good classes. Like, I knew the the sociology of pop culture, I figured it, it was a good class, but where business really started to pick up for me was... When we spent one day talking about the impact of Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling on the pop culture world, I'm like, dude, that's this, the right class. This class, this class was made for me. I'm in this. God puts you in a certain. God puts you in certain places for certain reasons, and I'm I'm in this class for a reason. But sociology of pop music was great. Like you, you go over everything. Like honestly, like from you know like blackface minstrel shows like back in the you know mm-hmm. the early 1900s all the way through like 
the doo-wop and blues, and then you go through like the 50s and Elvis and Chuck Berry and all the way through like the 60s and 70s and all like the protest tunes. It's just, it's great, man. It was just good stuff. There was classes at UT. I never got a chance to take them, but as someone texted in about jazz appreciation at UT, changed my life. Well, there was also like introduction to hip hop. Um, there was classic rock. Those those were courses that you could take as electives at UT. And I, I didn't see pop a, as one, but definitely would have been a fun elective to kind of, you know, get outside of your major curriculum and just enjoy a class. Those classes are a lot of fun to learn about. Yeah, I uh, you know what? I'm trying to get signed into the Steve Sarkeesian Zoom meeting, and it's not letting me sign in for some reason. So uh, we'll just we'll we're, we won't be able to get to any of that audio on this show anyway. But so probably I would say Chad, I might talk about some of that with Chad and Zay. I'll have time to go over that by the time their show starts, and I'm on with those guys at one o'clock today. So uh, as Cameron was saying at the start, Flex ATX show last night. Uh, you can get over to Cameron. How you rattle off the multiple ways you can get that Flex show from last night? Yeah. So I'll easiest way, it. if you want to just catch us on the Flex ATX podcast or the Horn FM podcast, basically anywhere you get your podcast, just search um, the Horn 104.9 FM or Flex ATX or flexatx.com or hornfm.com, and you can find it. So, yeah, great show. Uh, Todd Patman, the new Del Valle head coach, he came on the phone, and then we had Nico Hamilton, who is, believed the nephew of Harbaugh Hards, Lake Travis running back. He came on the show with his dad talking about his recruitment. He just went out to uh, Fort Worth. Jeff um, was invited to, uh, I believe, a junior day for TCU. Maybe just visit, but um, nice. he's getting looks at. Um, I know he's a guy that you'll probably – be covering a little bit more this next season as he hits his final year for the Cavs. Yeah, it's uh, that's that's a program. You know, every time we talk about Lake Travis last year, it was a you know maybe a little rough year this year, but maybe they're looking like they they might be getting back to yeah tough year where they, yeah maybe getting back to where they're usually used to being uh, next season. So uh, quite a bit of stuff that I want to get to. Uh, Cam, did you and Ty talk much draft? I, I forget. You guys were talking about the NBA. Did you guys get into much NFL draft stuff? We did not. Left it all for you. Okay, so I'll get into we'll get into some draft stuff. Actually, you know what, Ty? Just uh, Ty, Cameron, just go ahead and hit the Longhorn Notebook sounder while I'm thinking about it. Jeff Howe's Longhorn Notebook. Yeah. So there's a couple of different things I want to do. I want to take a look at some draft stuff. I also want to take a look at some stuff that we've got in the insider piece that's up at Horns 24/7 right now, uh, and also take a look at a piece that my colleague Brad Crawford did at 24/7 Sports, looking at uh, an AP poll projection for 2023 and what that associates to press top 25 might look at so right now though i want to go ahead and start with uh, a little bit of nfl draft talk and cam it seems like every time i look at an nfl draft i look at a mock draft Bijan robinson's creeping up there in mock drafts and when i say creeping up there the you know the consensus at this point is he's going to go in the first round it's just a matter of where and if you look at one of the latest projections, uh, this is Ryan Wilson at CBS Sports. He's got Bijan. Again, I've talked about this is kind of the target area for him. 21 to the Chargers. Now, say what you will about the Chargers. Brandon Staley, the coach that I think on any given Sunday probably does more to get himself fired than any other coach in the league. There's a difference, Cam, between being aggressive and being reckless. Brandon Staley seems to continually... As uh, as the late great Charlie Murphy would say, a habitual line stepper just continually steps over that line from I'm going to be aggressive 
to just being flat-out reckless. But when the Chargers are right, when they're locked in, we know they're really good. And assuming you know Mike Williams is good coming back off that injury, you know you've got one of the best young quarterbacks in the league in Justin Herbert. If you add B. John Robinson to that offense, Cam, I think that's a team that's got the goods to compete with the Chiefs in the AFC West if you throw Bijan into that mix. Yeah. I don't, I don't – the Staley thing's a big part of it because, like you said, he's a coach that when I watch on Sunday, it's like, does he know he has three timeouts? That's a pretty, that's a pretty big deal. Like, well, I don't know about the head coach that's like saying, man, this house is great. Everything looks good. I mean, the foundation sucks, but everything else about this place is great. And with Herbert, I mean, he's – I would say, you know, Mahomes is probably the most talented quarterback in the league, right? I would have Herbert as two. His arm about, talent? You're talking about just in terms of just talent at the position. Yeah. I – hmm. Oh, that's a tough one. I I would be really tempted to go Joe Burrow at two. Okay. I, no argument there. But he's definitely – But, yeah. Definitely he's, top five. He's no worse. Yeah, he's in the top five somewhere. I, I would if I'm ranking the just the talented guys in this league, I would probably go. Yeah, I'd probably go. Because I would even have Herbert ahead of Josh Allen. I would probably go Patrick Mahomes one, Joe Burrow two, Justin Herbert three, and then probably finish it out with Josh Allen and uh, and Trevor Lawrence in the top five. Okay, I wouldn't put Justin Fields in there yet. I just think I think Trevor Lawrence. You almost have to give him a. Mulligan for his rookie year, just with the Urban Meyer, the S show that was the Urban Meyer experiment in Jacksonville. Um, set him, set him a year back for sure. But you know, regardless of what you think about the Chargers' odds, <laughs> see, I knew this was coming. Herbert at two is ridiculous. I, he's in the top five somewhere. Say what you want, and I, th- I think th- I do think Cam, you're right. The Brandon Staley thing does cloud how you would view the Chargers. But the bottom line here, like, forget about the Chargers for a second. Let's just put off NFL conversations. Just put that off to the side. If you if you're a team that's going to trade up for Bijan or try to maneuver your way to get Bijan, I think if you're a team in the teens that has been linked to him, you know the Eagles at ten, I think maybe even the Patriots at fourteen, I think you're looking at probably maybe a trade back scenario to the late teens, probably like with Tampa Bay at nineteen, uh, you know maybe maybe Pittsburgh at seventeen because the Steelers really don't need. A running back, maybe they, maybe there's something. I know the Steelers historically don't trade up unless there's something that they really, really want, and then would have to be something that they really, really want. But if you're going to get Bijan, I think you've at the very least got to get in front of the Chargers at 21. Yeah, or maneuver yourself to where you're in that like 17, 17 to 20 range to get Bijan. And if you're the Cowboys, I don't. I, I as a Cowboys fan. As much as I love Bijan, I don't want to see them make that trade up. I would rather see them stay put because this is the first draft in a long time, Cam, where the Cowboys are going in because they signed Ronald Jones, and you know Tony Pollard is going to come back from the injury. They don't enter this draft with like a glaring need, a glaringly obvious need. Like they can, can they help themselves with offensive line? Yeah. Interior defensive line, can they help themselves? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, could they could they help themselves if the right safety falls there? Yeah, even though I don't think they would do that. Knowing Leighton Vander Esch doesn't have much of a shelf life if there's the right off-ball linebacker there. Could you go that? Yeah. So there's a number of different ways that the Cowboys could attack it. I just don't want to see them give up like the kind of draft capital they would have to give up to get in front of the Chargers to get B. John Robinson or trade with San Diego at 21. San Diego. Trade with, trade with L.A. at 21 to go get him. If you're the Eagles, uh, I think maybe you can – 
package some different picks and maneuver yourself because let's be let's face it there's not a whole lot the Eagles need running back is pretty much the one thing that they need so I just think it's it's good candidate reinforcing I feel like anytime especially in the last several years anytime you get a Texas guy that you think might be a first round guy there ends up being either stuff that comes out or the the draft board or something comes out at their pro day, you know, Connor Williams, it was his arm length, or just the way the draft falls, those guys typically start falling into the second round. And usually by around this time, about a month to three weeks out from the draft, you start to realize, all right, man, that guy that we thought was going to be a first-round pick probably isn't going to be a first-round pick. Osai for me. Joseph Osai. Sam Cosme was one of those yeah. guys. Connor Williams was a guy that we talked about. There was a time where Connor Williams was projected by some to maybe be in the mix to be – a number one overall pick. And I think that was drinking a little bit of the Kool-Aid off of his sophomore year, which, again, said it before, I'll say it again, how many offensive linemen has the veer and shoot offense produced, that Art Briles veer and shoot, how many offensive linemen has that system produced that have gone on to be productive linemen in the NFL? Not very many. But I just love the fact that this reinforces that that drought that we talk about with Texas of no first-round picks, haven't had a first-round pick since Malcolm Brown in 2015, that streak is going to end this year with B. Jones. Somewhere in the back end of the first round, it's going to end. So I just really, really dig that. Cameron, is there anything first-round draft-wise? You're a Cowboys fan, right? Yeah. The Cowboys right here, and see, I like like this position too. This mock draft from Ryan Wilson has the Cowboys going with Luke Musgrave, the tight end out of Oregon State. Tight end. There, there's going to be a really good tight end. Should be a really good tight end available to them at 26 if they want to go down that road. So, are you taking tight end at first? I, I just trust my board and I take best available player. Like I said, if you told me they went with an offensive lineman or an interior D lineman or a tight end, I would have a problem with it. The only thing, I, honestly, the only thing I might have a problem with would be is if you trade it up to go get. Somebody like a Bijan Robinson, yeah. and it's nothing. I love Bijan. It's nothing against Bijan. I just think if you're the Cowboys, you've done good by yourself to build this roster by trusting your board, hanging on to your draft capital, and making really good decisions. And I just don't want to see them go the other way and just again start robbing Peter to pay Paul and sacrificing your future for the here and now, especially like. Whatever Tony Pollard is going to be in Ronald Jones, that's good enough to at least get you through another year to where maybe you can figure out running back. And, and you know, maybe, hey, I think Roshan Johnson in the second round, if the Cowboys really want a running back, Roshan Johnson in the second or third round makes a lot of sense for the Cowboys. My, my wish list for the first four rounds, and it can be in any order. I don't care, Jerry and Steven, but I want to see a tight end pick. Are, are, are the Cowboys listening right now? Cam, you want Pro, to make sure so. they got uh, yeah, a, let me make a sure pen and paper? Jerry Jones has the Horn Jerry's, FM podcast. Jerry's got his big chief tablet out ready to jot this down. Running back, interior defensive lineman, offensive line, and then tight end. Now, Jerry said earlier this week, last week, that it's going to be Tyler Smith at left tackle and Tyron Smith at right. He's going to have Terrence Steele. Who had a great year last year, especially in, in run blocking as a swing tackle. Show of hands to any Cowboys fan that thought Terrence Steele was going to be a really big part of this offensive line mix a couple of years ago. No hands? I Nothing. see no hands in the air. But he's turned into it, so I'm curious, what, what is, do you go after a center with Biotic at center, even though he was technically a pro bowler last year, if you put any stock in that, which I don't, but it felt like I always love drafting offensive linemen every year depending on the round, yeah. just because you need to have that depth. And we've seen last year with the Cowboys, you got Jason Peters 
who's made of ice at 40 years old starting in a playoff game because the Cowboys kind of neglected offensive linemen after having three or four straight great years drafting offensive linemen. You know how hard that is to do what Jason Peters did? Like to, incredible. to sit on your couch and then at 40 years old just come in and be a productive member of a playoff team's offensive line? Hall of Famer. Uh, I think based on what he's what he did last year, I think that alone should. When you look at his body of work, <laughs> it's one year. It's one, yeah, just one year gets you in the Hall of Fame. No, when you look at the body of work and then what he did last year, like yeah, that should be that should get him consideration. Of I thought if the Cowboys were going to go center and you know move off of the Biotis experiment, I thought last year when they had a chance to draft uh, Tyler Linderbaum yeah. from Iowa, like that to me, I was like, dude. An Iowa center, like that just screamed like that just screamed like the Travis Frederick pick all yep. over again. Like it's not sexy, but it would have been really smart. But credit to them, man. Tyler Smith has worked out better than a lot of people thought it would. You know who was a really good center last year in the league? Who? Connor Williams. Yeah. I when he was at Texas, honestly, I I really thought that position for him would have been good. I really did. But he just didn't work it enough in college. I just thought like his body type, his athleticism, his ability to reach. Um, yeah, I remember the uh, oh man, was it the Cardinals? Yeah, they were playing the Cardinals in a preseason game, and I think there were just like three straight botch snaps in a row. And I was like, yeah, that's uh, the Connor Williams the center experiment with the Cowboys went about as poorly as a position mm-hmm. conversion could go. So. Um, so that's a little draft talk. I just wanted to to get that out there. Let's go ahead and talk, Cam, before we get to some insider stuff. Uh, I do want to look at, again, my colleague Brad Crawford at 24-7 Sports put this together. Uh, this is not a look at the AP Top 25 in 2023. This is a look at how the AP Top 25 will look in 2025. You got your head wrapped around that? A look at what the AP Top 25 will look at will look like in 2025, and would you like to know, Cameron, where the Texas Longhorns come in in an AP Top 25 projection for 2025? This is two years from now. So two years from now, it'll be Arch Manning's second year as the starting. I'm just kidding. Um, five. You hit it right on the head. Really, the man. Okay. Brad Crawford has Texas at five. When you look at an AP top twenty-five projection for twenty twenty-five, now this is what Brad says the future looks like for Texas over the next three three seasons to get you there. Twenty twenty-three, national championship contender. Twenty twenty-four, national championship contender. Twenty twenty-five, national championship contender. Do you think Texas is a national championship contender this year, Jeff? Well. I'll say it based on this. If you're talking about my expectation for this team, the bare minimum for this team, like if you want to call it a successful year where I think the bar, I, I, I say bare minimum when I mean to say bar, like where the bar should be set to, to clear, I think it's getting to, Ar- getting to Arlington and playing for a Big 12 championship. And if you get yourself to Arlington – you know, you're at the worst. You're nine and three. Ten and two is probably what it's going to take. And honestly, you feel like if you're eleven and one, obviously you'd feel really good about that. So national championship contender. If Texas is in the Big Twelve title game, it's not that much of a stretch to say they would be in the playoff discussion. Texas hasn't had a season where they've 
lost less than four games since 2009, though, Joe. I'm, I'm well, well aware. Which is so hard well for aware me of the track record. to just go from, yeah, we were in the Alamo Bowl last year and we got dominated at the line of scrimmage, but we can definitely be a contender for the title. Now, obviously, there's going to be a year where it just flips, you know, like we saw with, with Michigan under Harbaugh, where it felt like he was never going to get over that hump, and then like that he was. Maybe that's the year for Texas, but it's hard for me. And maybe it's because I've just been a Texas fan the last you know fifteen years. You so have, you have PTSD. No, it's it's you have P- fan PTSD. That's totally fine. But let's make it to Arlington. Let's make it to Arlington first. We've only been there once since the since the conference championship came up, and that was a ten and four season. I just think too, you know, one one thing that I look at and I try to track it, and and, and this is this is why I was hopeful Tom Herman would get over the hump. Uh, when you look at the number of one score losses, the losses in one possession games. Uh, you know, Tom Herman lost a lot. You know, you just play. Tom Herman played too many one possession games because at the end, when it evens out, you're going to be roughly around 500 in one possession games. And I think that was Tom Herman's record. I think he was 14 and 13 in one score games. And you look at the all of Texas losses last year were one score losses. You know, Alabama at the gun, Oklahoma State. You know, Washington in the bowl game. Just go on down the list. The, the games Texas lost. Or one score games. The TCU game ended mm-hmm. up being a one score game. Typically, that stuff, for the most part, doesn't roll over year to year. Typically, if you, if you flip, had, right? Yeah, if you racked up your losses in one score games in one year, typically it flips and goes the other way the following year. Uh, you know, Baylor's been a really good example of that. Like, if you look at Baylor's two really good years of late, that 2019 season under Matt Rule and then Dave Aranda's 2021 season. Go look at how Baylor's record in one-score games in both those seasons, and then look how the following year. Then, granted, they had roster turnover. One year was a coaching change. The COVID year, it totally flipped. The next year, typically that stuff flips. That's what doesn't give me pause about thinking Texas. Thinking of Texas as a national championship contender is just like this abstract, outside the box idea that just totally seems far fetched. If we're talking about this team being in the Big Twelve championship game and competing for a conference championship. You should be, at the very least, on the fringe of the playoff discussion. And usually what it takes to be a contender is you have a good offensive and defensive line. And I feel pretty yeah. confident in the where Texas is at in that regard for the first time in a long time. So I, if, if you told me that Texas is, what, 10-2 and two going into the Big 12 title game, I would believe you, but it's also – hard to grasp that considering that it feels like every oh, year sure, we go yeah. in it's like okay this team it could be a sneaky contender and here the, the way too early top 25 texas number five number six and then we're sitting at two and two no life as a texas fan for the last 13 years has been you know basically you've been charlie brown and you're just waiting for you're waiting for the moment when lucy's gonna pull that football away from you you're just waiting for it but it's got to flip at some point. And this texture says, very appropriately, we'll know where they are in week two. That's one of those games. This is the, the 2023 team has the opportunity that the 2020 team did not get. I felt like going into that 2020 season, if Texas had been able to go down to Baton Rouge, and granted, LSU had a bunch of opt-outs because of COVID, but let's say that LSU roster was what it was projected to be going into that 2020 season. Had Texas gone down to Baton Rouge and won that game, that could be like, I mean, I always go back to the 05 season. We talk about the the different high points in that national championship year, but it all started by going into Columbus and beating Ohio State in the horseshoe. Yep. When you get that kind of big-time road win, that can propel you to 
unforeseen heights. Like, like think about what LSU coming into Austin in 2019 and beating Texas, what that did for them. Because the, L- the, the LSU team that we saw in December and January wasn't, wasn't anything like the LSU team that we saw in September. That, that LSU team at the end of the year was miles better playing with a boatload of confidence and ended up being one of the better offenses we've seen in college football in the last half century. I mean, they, they were elite by the end of the year. And, and that, that was not an elite LSU team that played Texas early in the year. So maybe, look, I'm not saying Texas is going to go down to Tuscaloosa and win that game. But if they do, if they do, that's the kind of stuff that can propel you to one of those kind of seasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just gives you untold confidence. Like, dude, we went on the road. We went to Bama's house and beat Bama. And we feel like we, you feel like you can beat anybody at that point. Now that's got to translate from – that should give you confidence in your work and in your process and not bleed over into arrogance. That's been the problem with Texas winning some of these non-conference games in recent history is it goes from instead of giving you confidence, it just turns into arrogance real quick, and then we've seen how some of these seasons have ended. Or you have that that loss early in the season that kind of sets the program back. It feels like the Maryland losses, like even though— Yeah, that's why I like Tom Herman, the 2018 season— that's why the, the the win over USC, even though we didn't know like how bad USC was going to be by the end, that's why the USC win didn't mean much because you're still thinking, yeah, this is still the team that lost to Maryland two weeks ago. Yeah, a, a not very good Maryland team. Cameron, I'm glad you mentioned line of scrimmage because that's where I wanted to go with uh, some tidbits that we've got in the Insider at Horns 24/7, and I won't go too deep into all of these, but this is just some uh, the the one tidbit I really wanted to talk about was dealing with the defensive line specifically. And this is off some of the scrimmage situations that some of our sources were able to watch last weekend. I want to read you uh, these really three tidbits, Cam. They all go together. Said the defense was pretty salty in the red zone, very physical and tough to move up front. They had a heavy package where they put four defensive linemen on the field together at the same time. It was Byron Murphy, Devondre Sweat, Vernon Broughton, and Alfred Collins. Another source, if I had to pick a standout on defense, I'd say the entire defensive line was the standout. Tidbit number three, it wouldn't shock me if Byron Murphy and Tavondre Sweat had the same kind of years Mauro Ajomo and Keandre Coburn had last year. Those two are a problem on the interior D-line. Now, Cameron, what I took away from that is this. The fact that this defense can be salty in the red zone and it starts up front, that doesn't surprise me at all. The fact that you're telling me that in a, in a scrimmage situation that the defensive line can stand out above all the other position groups, that doesn't surprise me. If you're telling me that Byron Murphy and Tavondre Sweat can have the same kind of year that Coburn and Ojemo had last year, that doesn't surprise me. And this isn't necessarily a surprise, but this is the thing that stands out. It's not so much Sweat and Murphy doing what Ojemo and Coburn did last year. Can you get out of Broughton and Collins what you got out of Murphy and Sweat last year? Can you legitimately be too deep on your defensive line where it doesn't matter who's in, you're going to get the same level of production? That's the big deal for me, and that's Vernon Broughton. Vernon Broughton's kind of been a steady hand. He needs to take that step, next step of making more impact plays, whereas Alfred Collins is the exact opposite. We've seen him make those splash plays. Now can he take a step, and the step forward for Alfred Collins is, can you get that more consistently? Those two guys, I said it when, when they committed to Texas, those are the kinds of guys that, 
are in your defensive line group if you want to talk about being a championship caliber team. You've got to stack your defensive line with those types of guys. And you've got four guys that could legitimately be four front-line players. But I think it's those two guys. It's Broughton and Collins. I'm not worried about Sweat and Murphy. But if Broughton and Collins can take those steps and get to where they want to, yeah, this defensive line could easily be the best defensive line of the Big 12. Yeah, Collins is the guy for me coming into this year where it's if you like circle, hey, circle one person on each side of the ball that you want to see have a good year, it's Alfred Collins for me. Because, Who's that guy for you on offense real quick? I would say um, that's a good question. I, I, I'll either lean running back or someone either has got to be narrow worthy because I felt like worthy hasn't had – he didn't have the season last year that we thought he was going to have, and maybe that's because of a broken hand. Nair, because we've heard so much about him and what he could bring to this offense, but we haven't seen him in action for yet. Me, for me, it's Christian Jones. Okay, so you're leaning offensive line because I think if Christian Jones, if Christian Jones has a has a better year than he had last year, I think you got the best pair of bookend tackles in the Big Twelve yeah. with Jones and Banks. And then that just uh, everything else on your offensive line should filter out from there. See, I, I feel so confident in the defensive line, and maybe uh, maybe I'm just drinking way too much Kool Aid, but I don't feel that with the skill positions just yet because we talked about I think last week in Longhorn Notebook about what Bijan and Rojo did to the Texas offense, and now you have that safety blanket gone. Who's going to step up at the running back position? Because we saw in the Alamo Bowl, you know, the running game was non-existent, right? We know Brooks had the right. had the hernia issue. We, we didn't really see any of Jaden Blue, I don't think. And now we've heard great things about Cedric Baxter and Blue and Brooks. On the receiver side, you know, who outside of Worthy in Jatavian Sanders is going to be that third guy? Yeah, I you know, my thing with the running backs, Cam, like, just going back to the bowl game real quick, I, I still, and he'll probably never say anything publicly, I still want to know, like, what what Sark's plan in the bowl game was. Like, I, I just can't I can't believe that, that he thought lining up and just running Keelan Robinson between the tackles that was going yeah. to work. And, unless, and I've said this, I said this on Longhorn Blitz a lot, the only way that's true, if that really was his plan, is he was just counting on the offensive line to just go mash Washington. And they underestimated how good of a defensive front Washington had. And they just, they didn't count on losing the battle at the point of attack in the way that they lost it. This goes back to another topic I talked about. You, you've got to be creative with your run game because what Bijan and Roshan did, there's a reason why when we talk about those guys, why we talk about missed tackles forced and percentage of missed mm-hmm. tackles forced, like perc- missed tackles forced per rushing attempt, because those two guys were two of the best, if not the two best in the country at doing that, at maximizing runs. Talk to any coach at any level, high school, college, NFL, not every run play, and as you get up to the higher levels of football, this holds even more true. Not every play is going to be blocked perfectly. At some point, if you're a running back, as I've heard many coaches say over the year, at some point you've got to go be an athlete and go make a play. And you've got to make something out of nothing if you're worth your salt as a running back. And, again, those two guys did that as well as anybody in the country. Now I do think you, you won't necessarily have to count on them as much if your offensive line is improved. But to me, it's going to be figuring out kind of what you want, what you want the identity of your run game to be. I think if you're Sark and you're Kyle Flood, figuring out what you want the identity of the run game to be, that will give you a better idea of who needs to be getting the lion's share of the carries. Because if you if you want your the identity of your run game to be a more creative, uh, scheme oriented version of what you have last year, in other words, where you're leaning a little more on scheme than talent then I think you go C.J. Baxter and Jonathan Brooks, and then you can sprinkle in 
and, and throw Jaden Blue in there too, and then you could sprinkle in you know Keelan Robinson and and Savion Red and make use those guys as the multi-purpose weapons that they should be. So I just think creativity in the run game is going to be a really big deal. Do you think Sark was less creative knowing that Bijan and Rojo could turn a broken play into a 10-15 yard gain? See, I you the obvious answer would be yes, but I I would think if you know your personnel, you should probably know better than that. That's a, I just think it was an overestimation of what the offensive line could do. That's until I hear different from Sark, and again, it was the bowl game. It's not. It's not like it's worth, you know, him rehashing it publicly at this point. Mm-hmm. I just think it was an overestimation of what the offensive line could do. So, so your guy on offense that you're circling, you've got Nair or Worthy. I'll think about it, but defensively, it's Alfred Collins for sure. And I, this is the thing I wonder with AC. Like, does he just need to find a home? Like, he's been a guy that I think the the upside with him and kind of that that tantalizing ability with him is oh man just look at his size his speed his speed his strength kind of like all the raw tools man you could play him at multiple shades and my thing is instead of focusing on playing him multiple shades would he be better off if you just got him focused on just doing one thing and just working on that one maybe that's just all he needs to be consistent just doing one thing and doing it well i I compare alfred collins a lot to henry melton because when they decided well, finally, what to do with Henry Melton? You know, he was a running back, and then always oh, going to be like this multi-purpose guy on the defensive line. And then when Will Muschamp got in and decided, no, this is where I'm going to play him, Henry Melton became an NFL draft pick. And that's where I think I think Alfred Collins, as long as he doesn't have a terrible year, I think he's going to get drafted just on his metrics alone. I think he's a guy that would one of those guys that goes to the combine and just blows up the combine. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of his size, because of his measurables, because of what he can do athletically in the testing, I just think the numbers have to be there for him. But I think probably just focusing him on doing one thing, doing it well, that might be the best thing for him. All right, we'll take a break. Come back. Inconceivable is going to close out our number one here on Light the Tower on the Horn, live, local, and digital on the Horn app and at hornfm.com. Inconceivable. 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 You keep using the Horn. I don't think it means what you think it means. All right, we're going to go to the state of Florida for one. From uh, I know typically we do that tomorrow. We grab that low-hanging fruit for the most flaccid state in the lower 48. But, Cameron, do you remember our pillars of inconceivable? The pillars? Yes, we have three pillars of inconceivable. No. Three pillars of inconceivable. Meth, which any kind of drug-related story mm-hmm. we're all about. Death, any time of like weird death, you know, like like a Bo Diaz situation or something like that. Uh-huh. Or animal attacks. See, anytime animals go wild. This isn't animals attacking humans, Cam. This is animal on animal crime. Uh, Barbara D'Angelo, she's a retired snowbird who lives in Florida. This is why this isn't like a true Florida person story. She lives in Florida during the winter, Michigan during the summer. She photographed a large alligator swallowing a significantly smaller reptile in a swampy environment on March 6th. Quote, I was looking westerly when I heard a splash behind me and saw a large alligator with something large in its mouth. She told Fox News Digital. I thought it was a duck at first because they are mostly dark. D'Angelo said this encounter isn't the first time she's seen an animal eating another animal since she often visits the wetlands for bird watching. This time, however, she made sure to capture photos of an alligator eating a smaller reptile. Quote, I was shaking through all of this, but was up on the roadway a good distance and felt safe enough. 
I pass at least 10 to 15 alligators as I walk a nature trail through the wetlands. They are everywhere. She continued, quote, usually they are just sleeping on the shoreline. Alligators are very temperature oriented. When they need to cool down, they will crawl out of the water and just sleep right there. This evening was not a sleeping alligator, obviously. D'Angelo shared photos of what she witnessed on Facebook in the Orlando Wetlands Park group, which is open to the public. The wildlife encounter lasted for two minutes. Cameron, I don't know, man. This is, uh, can you see this picture? This a gator's got this little smallish gator oh, in its man, mouth yeah. just going to town. Yeah, man, that would, uh, I would be mesmerized by that. I wouldn't be shaking. Uh, I'll tell you that. I would probably, I, I go the opposite way. Like some people shake and freak out. I freeze. I just freeze. Just like still heartbeat, just like nothing going on. I just freeze. Oh, it's not going to, you're not in danger. I'd be like a, like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like freeze <laughs> like the pillar of salt. Yeah, I just wouldn't move. That's wild. I, you know, we don't, I know I open up this conversation every now and then. Have you ever heard of an alligator sighting in the area, Cam, or seen an alligator in the area? In the area? Yeah. Uh, no. The only one I've heard about is just north of, in between Florence and Colleen, kind of around the Ding Dong area on the Lampasas River. Or there was a, there was a, there was a gator there at one point in time that camped out. So was it just like relocated from Florida? It was just like, ah, I'm just going to take a flight. I heard of, also there was a couple years ago that alligator in Bastrop that I think got a hold of somebody's dog. See, I did hear about area. the bass drop because it was yeah. at the lake that's no longer there, correct? Uh, allegedly, there were uh, someone tried to tell me an urban legend about alligators in Spicewood, too, but that has never been confirmed nor denied. Hmm. It's never been proven hmm. true or false. So, a little alligator on alligator crime for inconceivable. Uh, that's going to do it for hour number one. Hour number two coming up next here on Light the Tower on the Horn, live, local, and digital on the Horn app and at hornfm.com.